This is chapter 136 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we get a lesson on why it always pays to double-check the math from mathematician and stand-up comedian Matt Parker. Then we find out how far best-selling thriller writer Lisa Gardner is willing to go to get the forensics right in her books. How many of you book lovers have no love for math and had no problem when the dog chewed their calculus textbook? Oh, that's just me. Well, then we'll move on. In his new book, Humble Pie, that's pie with a P-I, mathematician Matt Parker seeks to answer the question struggling math students have been asking for millennia. When am I ever going to use this in the real world? His answer might surprise you. Generations of teachers have been faced with this question, and I get it as well, like from adults, like why, oh, I hated math, why would anyone need to know it? And so I guess the time was right just because I was sick of that question. I was sick of being asked, what is the, you know, what is the point of learning math, why is it important? And I was like, no, hang on, if we, our modern society is built on mathematics. And if anything goes wrong in engineering and finance and medicine and programming, like it's all, it's all math. And so I was like, right, I'm sick of being asked this question. You know, thousands and thousands of math teachers are sick of being asked it. I'm going to try and write a book to answer that question. So I will freely admit to being one of those people because math was not my strong suit in school, <laughs> nor as an adult. But after reading your book, it's kind of scary to read how one wrong calculation can have really, really awful and sometimes deadly results. Yeah, and you're not alone. You're not alone in in that regard. And I think part of the problem is uh, uh, humans that we're not naturally good at mathematics, which has pros and cons. The downside is when you're at school, you struggle with it because your brain is not used to doing it. And kind of what a lot of people don't realize is that the mathematicians, people who are into math, they're not necessarily people who find it easy. They're people who enjoy the fact that it's difficult and it's a struggle to learn it and you're going to make mistakes when you're, when you're you know, teaching your brain new mathematical thinking skills. The upside is it lets us go beyond our intuition. And so this is like you were saying, we now have situations where we're building and designing and developing things beyond what our brains can do naturally. We, we can't like look at a modern building and just go, yeah, that'll stand up, right? We've got to run the numbers and do the calculations and make sure it works. But the problem is, if we make a mistake in the math, we may not notice because our intuition is no longer uh, useful. And sadly, you know, I tried to write a fun, you know, lighthearted, good-natured book, but I couldn't get around the reality that in so many different disciplines, if you do make a mistake in the, in the mathematics, people can die. I know that I definitely should have listened to you. You have a little note before you get into several stories about airplanes. I should have skipped over that. I'm not the best of flyers, and after reading that, I'm not sure I'm going to look at flying the same way again. That probably didn't help, did it? No, I was I was careful that in all the aviation stories in my book, nobody dies. Because I, like I was under contract to write a comedy book about math. And if every second story was, and then everybody dies, I'd, I'd get in trouble. And so all the plain stories, they're not reassuring, as you say. Like there's the one where there was a miscalculation when they were fueling an aircraft. This was in Canada in the early 80s. They calculated the amount of fuel they needed 
using kilograms, but then they fueled it in pounds because it was right when Canada was switching systems. And because of one unit mistake, they put in half as much fuel as they needed and they ran out mid-flight. And there was another flight, like the Boeing 787 in 2015, like, which is disturbingly recently, they realized there was an error in the code and the way that the power generation units kept track of time. The number they used to count down for time um, keeping wasn't big enough. And if they ran the same aircraft for too long, it would cause the power generation units to turn off mid-flight. And the solution for that was that before every flight, while they were fixing the code, Boeing had to turn the planes off and on again to reset the number, which is just terrifying. And in all these stories, nobody died. But the fact that, you know, individual math mistakes can have such an impact is incredible. But there's also just, you know, the vast majority of the time, the math is correct. And it goes on unnoticed behind the scenes, holding our modern society together. Is there anything we can do to avoid these kinds of mistakes? Is it just a matter of double-checking the math? It's just a matter of double-checking the math. You're absolutely correct. I mean, even when I was writing the book, I got a friend of mine, and, and she's a fantastic mathematician, and I was like, can you read what I've written and double-check every calculation I've done and everything I've done? And, and they, they found mistakes in what I've done, right? And it's just a case of, first of all, it's not important accepting you're going to make mistakes. That's the point of learning mathematics. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have errors. Math is not about just getting the right answer, despite what people might remember from school. It's about playing with logic and thinking and problem solving and puzzles and all these things. But then on the flip side, when it is important, you've got to remember, like humans, we're fallible. We will make mistakes. We're very good at it. And part of what I liked to explore in the book is not just pointing out these mistakes and like laughing at, you know, the, the non, you know, disaster ones. But I also want to look at how we can stop and avoid it, how we can check things, and even how we can use math and mathematical logic to build systems that accept that humans will make mistakes. And we can make the systems robust and able to tolerate errors without them becoming disasters. So it's just a case of all, always double check your working out. I also got the sense that humans also have to realize that they're not smarter than the math. The math is always going to be right. The humans aren't. Yeah, the math will always be right as long as we've got the right assumptions or the right things we've set up. So math is will always be correct in, in, for some definition of correct. But in things like I talk about in finance, if your starting assumptions are off, and and I talk a little bit like I'm not, I as a mathematician look at things like the financial crash, the subprime mortgages of you know 2009, and I'm like the math here is interesting, but I there's so much finance and human nature going into it, you can't you can't just be blindly crunching through your equation, you got to look at the bigger picture, and so it's partly, you know the math will always be correct provided you know we do it right, uh, but but. We, we can't take the humans out of the system. You've got to be aware of, of human nature and what we're going to do. Did you have one example in particular that really stands out as your favorite? It's hard to choose a favorite. And every time someone asks me that question, I probably give a different answer. <laughs> My favorite at the moment, I'm a big fan of spreadsheets. 
it's a matter of public record. I'm you know into recreational spreadsheet use, and um, some of the spreadsheet stories rank very high on my list of favourites. Current number one would be there were some researchers in Melbourne in Australia who looked at people who were publishing biology research, mainly genetics kind of research, who had used spreadsheets to analyze their data. And they realized some of the names of genes and proteins were very close to dates. So like there, there's a gene called like March 5, and there's like a, a protein called like uh, Sept 15 or something. And they realized if you put the names of these genes into Excel, it would autocorrect them into dates. And they went through and found of all genetics research that was published that they could access, and they looked at thousands of uh, bits of research, and they got all the Excel files that had been used in roughly 24%. So about a quarter of them, there was an autocorrect mistake in the data because Excel had turned a gene name or something into a date. And the fact that one in four bits of research, they're getting mistakes introduced because of the way they use spreadsheets. I find that both amazing and terrifying. (laughs) Before I let you go, though, you have to tell me, how did you come up with the system to number the pages in your book? A lot lot of emails. So uh, the pages numbers go in reverse order. So they start at 314 and then they count down one a page until they hit zero. And the reason I'm so motivated to do that is there are lots of computer systems uh, like, like the Boeing 787 system, where if you count down the wrong way and you hit zero, it crashes. And so I wanted to kind of capture that mistake in the actual physical book. And so I was so adamant. And when I first sent in, like, the first proposal I sent in to Penguin saying, hey, I want to write this book about math mistakes, and even the proposal, I had found a way to hack around with the formulas and page numbers in Word so that the file had reverse page numbers. And when they kind of agreed to that, I was like, hey, like the proposal had the reverse numbers in it. Like you you signed off implicitly very early on. And so they they made it happen. So, you know, my hat is off to the typesetters. They they got my ridiculous reverse numbers and the numbers hit zero and they crash. I have to tell you, I think you hit on a a new idea because I read lots of thrillers and mysteries. And I think knowing how many pages I have left to go before it wraps up without skipping to the end and maybe giving something away. I think you've hit upon a novel idea for the literary world. (laughs) Because it's good because normally you go, I'll just skip ahead to see what. And you're like, ah, caught a word. Exactly. Now, (laughs) now, I mean, maybe the next step is I need to do instead of page numbers, do the percentage of the book that you've read. At the bottom. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. That one might be a tougher sell. You're gonna you're gonna get an angry email from my publishers in a year or two <laughs> when. I... <laughs> well, we've been talking with Matt Parker, and the new book is Humble Pie: When Math Goes Wrong in the Real World. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Lisa. You may know Lisa Gardner as a top-notch thriller writer whose meticulously researched and twisty books never fail to entertain. But you may not know that she's also a dedicated philanthropist. As part of the tour for her new book, When You See Me, Gardner is advocating for local nonprofits that support victims of domestic violence and abuse in every tour city. I recently got to talk to her about her latest novel. 
So when you see me starts with the discovery of skeletalized remains in the woods behind this cute, charming mountain town. So already, you know, something's terribly wrong. <laughs> and an entire FBI task force is assembled to go check it out. And they quickly realize they may have stumbled upon something way, way worse. And with one town and so many secrets, everyone is immediately at risk. So you bring together three of your characters who people have really gotten to know and really have gotten to like over the course of, of several of your books. But you also introduce us to someone who I would kind of describe her as very unique. What led you to create her character? In the opening chapter, we meet Girl. We know she's a child um, due to a gunshot wound when she was young. She can't speak. She can't read. She can't write. She's trapped in a terrible circumstance. She's brave and determined, but she has no voice, literally. You know, what is she going to do? How can she ask for help? And I came up with Girl, I think, in the way writers work. Um, you know, our gift is communication. So if you think of yourself as if, if you couldn't even read, if you couldn't write a letter or a note asking for help, if you couldn't say the word help, what would that feeling be like? And I have to say this things more terrifying to me so um, as to be voiceless. So, you know, that became the book. And did you have to, like, go outside? Because you heavily research your books. Absolutely. For the sake of girl, I interviewed speech pathologists. And there is a very real condition, speech aphasia. You see it in head wounds, head trauma, strokes. Uh, it's a, just damage to a particular region of the brain. So the next question even became, well, how would you try to communicate with such a case? Then I interviewed um, forensic experts who specialize in interviewing children with a legal bar is totally different. You know, how would you, could you do a forensic interview? And they told me, I easily brought them their worst case scenario. And we spent a couple of days on it, trying to figure out what the options might be in the real world. How would you approach such a case? And I find all of that fascinating. Then, you know, there's talking to the Bonnie farm about skeletalized remains and mass graves and cadaver dogs. I would say my job's a little bit fun. <laughs> <laughs> and you wrote up an article for the New York Times on your visit to the body farm. Did you manage to I keep did. down your breakfast? Because you mentioned it, there was a chance <laughs> it wasn't going to stay down. It's one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. Very reverent, very amazing. Um, but it was extremely intimidating. I mean, at the end of the day, for all my time I spend talking to people who have cool jobs, I mostly just sit around and type a lot. I mean, I had never seen a body, a dead body outside of like a funeral home experience. And to be walking Death's Acre where there's human remains everywhere, um, hanging from trees, partially submerged, hanging out of trunks of cars because they're trying to reenact specific criminal um, scenes. It's, it was, it was very intimidating and the blow flies as they like to talk about <laughs> and the smell and yeah, but it was just, it was very cool. And I think it comes across in the book to readers. I think you're a much um, stronger person than a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, their own attitude when you were there really, really impressed me. The amount of respect because people donated their body to science or made direct donations to the body farm. That's how all this works. Um, so that we can get better information, so we can get justice for so many victims out there. I mean, it really is an amazing place, an amazing work made possible by amazing volunteers. 
Now, after seeing their work and knowing the respect they have and how much it helped you out, is that something you would ever think of doing? (laughs) I love criminology, and that's really what I bring to my novels. Um, What does it feel like to be a girl? What's it like to be um, a survivor who was kidnapped for 472 days and now you still can't get your kidnapper out of your head and here might be a new link to more secrets about him. Um, When you deal with people, the body farm, uh, a lot of the police experts, their science is so strong and their attention to detail, I am so envious, but I would be terrible at that job myself, but I'm deeply appreciative that they're so good at it. (laughs) And you know what also, uh, the thing that too that struck me with this book, you deal with a lot of real world stuff, which, which we've covered, but you have a touch of the supernatural in this book. Yeah. You know, I love that element that if you, especially at a young age, if you lose one ability, other things replace it or expand to fill it. I'm like, this is a girl who to me would just have a rich imagination, a rich mental life because she is so trapped in her own mind all the time because she cannot express herself. But I'm like, well, what if that also leads to being able to sense and feeling herself more in tune with other things? I just, I think there's way more about our brains we don't know than we do. It kills me not to be able to talk more about that because I would totally be giving away <laughs> the entire ending of the book. So I just want readers to know it's to- it's totally worth it and you'll understand exactly what I'm saying when you pick it up. So what can we expect next from you, Lisa? I'm Back to work, taking another case. Um, most of my books start with something in the real world. And one of the trends we have right now that I find fascinating is everyday people getting involved in missing persons investigations, particularly cold cases. Um, everything from we've had a very famous case here in New Hampshire, Bearbrook, where it took both police but some very specialized volunteers. In one case, a woman gave four years <laughs> to uh, to crack this cold case and um, what it would be like to be just a civilian, not police, not vigilante, not anything special, but drawn into this world and, you know, murder and mayhem ensue. <laughs> and, and will you also be running your uh, Kill a Friend, Mayhem Buddy contest? Yes. Um, the contest is up and running at lisagardner.com. I encourage readers to check it out and maybe they can be a lucky stiff in the next novel. Well, Lisa, thank you for your time today. The new book is When You See Me. Really enjoyable. And like I said, I wish we could talk so much more about it, but we can't. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Lisa. That's this week's show. Next time, supermodel Kathy Ireland stops by our studios to talk about her new book, Fashion Jungle, which is closely based on the people she met and things she experienced during her modeling career should be juicy. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.